Hello and welcome to The Full Send with Christina Kim. And Alan Shipnuck, we are back again. Uh, Christina, how you doing? I'm great. I'm uh, happy as Larry. I have yet to be vaccinated. Um, that is a struggle right now trying to find out which event I'm going to take off in terms of finding the right window of time of an off week versus creating an off week so that I can actually make the time to get my vaccination um, unless I do end up with the Johnson and Johnson, whatever I end up getting. So no, everything's great though. How are you? I'm doing well. I highly recommend the vaccination. Uh, I was able to get it done. You know, I coach high school basketball and that makes me a school district employee. And we got this frenzy email from the athletic director saying, mm -hmm. come pick up. We're going to make an ID for you. Go get vaxxed because we're going to try and cram a season before the end of the uh, end of the year. So um, actually, I got my first poke on April 13th, it was almost exactly one year to the day when everything shut down. And I felt a sense of like closure and kind of relief and uh, uh, got the second one before I went to the masters and actually felt fine. It was a, uh, it was kind of a non-event. Yeah, I was, I was girded for days of, of feeling crappy as some people had, but really I had the chills for about half an hour the, the day after and uh, felt a little less than hundred percent, but that was it. And so, yeah, it's, it's liberating for sure. It, what you know? Did you? There was a news break about the PJ Tour that once players are vaccinated, they're not, they're no longer going to test them for COVID. Do you know how how the LPJ is going to handle that? I do believe we're going to do something um, along the lines of, at the very, very minimum, once the LPJ Tour player body is at a level of quote unquote theoretical herd immunity by way of vaccination, we will at least contemplate the idea of stopping with the testing. But again, just as it's been for, you know, the last year plus, everything is still very fluid. So we're just kind of rolling with the punches. And yeah, no, I, I mean, I've been, I've been stoked to get my vaccination. And I know that, you know, once they, you know, it's going to be opened up to everybody, but it's one of those things where I'm like, well, I've done my research. And as you know, it, it states anyway that they recommend you get your second dose if you're going to be given the two-dose vaccine at the same location you get your first one and this and that. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, yeah. all right. I feel kind of weird being like, you know, hey, I'm in, you know, I, I'm home in Florida. I get my first shot. And then I end up in, you know, somewhere in like Ohio or something like that. And I'm like, ah, oh, I know that they have them. I just kind of feel like, you know, I, I, again, I, I would feel more comfortable doing it back in Florida where I know that I have mine allocated for me as opposed to just kind of stepping in. So I'm, I'm, I'm very, very excited for it. It's, go, it's going to happen when it happens. But I, again, until then, you know, I mean, I, I have no problem, you know, masking up, double masking. I've got legit N95 masks. I have my hazmat suit that I travel in. I, I obviously will get vaccinated and am very keen to, I just want to make sure that, you know, I do it right. I, I don't want to, you know, necessarily not now, you know, we, we're not necessarily cutting in line these days anymore. It's just, you know, I want to make sure that I'm not necessarily taking away from someone in another community. Yeah, I understand. I had a few qualms, but, um, you know, it really was a, a school district mandate for where I am. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I found in, in trying to make the appointments is, there's always a town that nobody wants to go to to get vaccinated, wherever you are. Um, 
and for me, it was like Watsonville, which is this ag town. You know, you know Watsonville. Mm. It's kind of in the middle of nowhere. And sure. they had a lot of appointments. And I was, I was actually looking when I was down in San Diego um, for the, the uh, Carlsbad for the Kia Classic because there was a chance I could squeeze in there. And it was the town of Hemet, which is an hour away. Nobody wanted to go to Hemet. They had appointments every 10 minutes. Like, you just have to kind of click around on the map and you'll yeah. find a place. I don't know Florida well enough, but if you're willing to drive an hour or an hour and a half, there's, there's always appointments available. And you're actually doing a service by taking them because they're going unused. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we just got to get everyone vaccinated at some point. So, um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing. I'll be curious what the institutional reluctance is among players on, on LPGA and, and the PGA tour, because, um, you know, especially on the PGA tour, we know that there's, there's a certain political profile of, of the tour player, and uh, are they going to be are they going to be open to being vaccinated? You know, Jay Monahan said that it's a personal decision. He's not going to mandate it, uh, even though it can obviously affect the business model in some ways. So uh, I don't. Of course, we'll never make the numbers public. But do you have any sense, especially on, on, on the LPGA? Is there is there any sort of reluctance from certain demographics to to get in, get in the vaccine? Well, I'm a nosy ass bitch. So I've been talking to like everyone. I'm like, so like back in November, uh, back in October, November, I'm like, hey, legitimately no judgment. Just curious, you know, are you going to vote? If you do vote, for whom are you going to cast? And, uh, you know, this year during the season, I've been like, so are you going to get vaccinated? You know, and if you're not, why won't you again? um, You know, I want to always make sure that every conversation I have is a is a relatively safe space. So the vast majority of players I've spoken to, and this includes, um, you know, American and non-American, like a lot of the uh, Korean players have been like, bruh, I want to I I I I. I want the vaccine. Like I need the vaccine. This is, you know, and, and I think it may be a, it may be a little bit of a stereotype on my part, but maybe, you know, we, as a tour tend to be a lot less independent than say on the men's tour, because, you know, on the men's tour, you make so much money that you're able to, you know, not all of them, obviously, but some guys, you know, they fly privately and then they fly their whole family over, they fly the nanny over, um, you know, they have their entire teams, whereas it's a little bit still more um, of a, you know, we, we basically, we don't necessarily caravan the way that, you know, the founders did back in the day, we do travel, a, a lot of us travel together and it's like, oh, hey, yo, what's up? You know, we got our, our One World Alliance people. And then it's like, oh, you're a Star Alliance person kind of thing. You, know, you have like these groups of people that tend to fly together, a lot of it based on where their home base is. And so we have a lot of players that are very community based, just outside of, you know, all of the, you know, philanthropic things that they want to do and work within their community. Just, we have that kind of ingrained in us as we have to do this, you know, the vaccination is, is beyond, obviously it's got huge implications for the ways that we ourselves can get back to normal life. Along with that though, is, you know, you're in essence going to be hopefully saving other people. And as you know, it may not sound great. I I do joke though, that I'm like, ah, I've had a good run. If I have an adverse reaction, I've had a good run. Although now with this podcast, I'm like, no, nothing, nothing, nothing can happen. And I believe nothing will happen. And, you know, I'm, I'm young, I'm healthy ish. 
or I should, excuse me, I'm young-ish and I'm healthy. So there's no reason why there should be any adverse reactions. Wait, just, just to make sure I understand this, your only reason for wanting to live now is this podcast? Is that, did I? It's all for you, Alan. It's all for <laughs> Not for me, for the listeners. I'm just, I'm just a conduit. Like, come on. Uh, but I, I respect that deeply. Um, so in your informal polling, what, what was the, the breakdown between Trump and Biden? Can you, were there any Trump voters that you talked to or they, they wouldn't say it out loud or what was your take there on were, that? Yes, there were a couple of Trump voters. There were less than a handful of very proud Trump voters. And there was a player or two that, you know, I asked and I was like, hey, you know, how's it going to go? You know, are you going to vote this year? Especially, you know, some of my my younger uh, friends I have on tour and they're like, yeah, I, I am going to vote. And I'm like, oh, OK, I'm like, who are you going to vote for? And I remember Tiffany Joe was nearby when I was asking one of the players. And later on, we were having a socially distanced coffee. And she was like, bro, you can't ask who, people who they're going to vote for. And I'm like, why? I don't. I'm not going to judge someone. She's like, it's like asking a woman how much she weighs. And I was like, well, bitch, how much do you weigh then? I'm like, I don't care. I'm like, that doesn't, you're still the same person to me, unless you're going to be like, oh, I'm going to vote for so-and-so and then go into some sort of a conspiracy theory about lizard people. Then I'm like, okay, we're going to have to, we're going to have to maybe have a little bit different discussion. And there was a player who was like, I don't think you're going to like who I'm going to say. And I was for, for a nanosecond, I'm like, realistically that could go either way because mm-hmm. obviously I'm California raised. I live in Florida now though. And I've been fortunate enough to have a long career out here. And there are certain perceptions when it comes to professional golfers and this and that. And I was like, well, who do you think that I would be mad about you voting for technically? I'm very, very curious. And so this was a person that says she was going to vote for Trump. And I said, I would rather you go and vote for Trump and use your right to vote than choose not to vote. And you have every right to vote. Your opinion matters just as much as mine does. So let's all just cast our ballots and see where things, where all the chips fall. And whomever ends up being the winner is the winner. Although now, you know, post election, I guess, <laughs> depending on who you talk to, whoever is the winner doesn't necessarily mean is the winner. Whoever isn't the winner might be. It, it's just, it's, it's sad and comical. Well, that, that's an interesting um, take on the whole thing. The, the demographics are very different from the, the two tours. I mean, I feel like the LPGA in general is, is far more left-leaning than the PGA tour. And I was talking to a a dean of the golf press. I won't, I won't out their identity, but he was saying to me, um, and I understand the point that, you know, the last, the Trump years were really hard for him in that he's a pretty progressive guy and the, the PGA tour and its community is so, was so Trump heavy. And his take was, I've always been able to respect Republicans, different points of view, but the Trump stuff was different. I mean, the, the level of graft and greed and the, the personal insults flying out of the Oval Office and just everything that Trump was as a politician, a person offended him. And the warm embrace from the golf community of, of Trump, he, it really affected the way he viewed people in golf and 
his feeling about covering the game. And it was interesting because uh, I, I certainly understood what he was saying. And I've heard that mm -hmm. from other people. And I, it's actually a story I want to write, you know, as golf emerges from the Trump years, what, what is the lasting effect? I mean, I'm no doubt there's been friendships damaged. There's, there's been a lot of mudslinging on Twitter. Um, but I don't know. I, I, you know, like John McCain, I thought was a great American and I, I'm a Democrat and I wasn't going to vote for John McCain. We had policy differences, but I certainly respected him. And it was harder to get to that place with Trump for a variety of reasons. So I relate to what this, this other reporter was saying in a lot of ways. I mean, have, have you felt the, you know, certainly the country was heavily divided over the last four years. Did, did that seep in any of the relationships on tour and, and the conversations and just the feeling in the air? You know, at least on my part, I did my best to make sure that they didn't. I know of a number of players on the LPGA tour that did vote for the former guy. And I knew them as good people prior to that. And that doesn't necessarily have to take away. Again, these are not the uh, lizard baby people or what have you. And these are not conspiracy theorists. And these are not necessarily people that have publicly told me or personally told me that Trump won the election. These are people that were born and raised conservative in a less diverse area than where I was raised, which is pretty much anywhere on the planet. I was so fortunate to have been raised in San Jose, California, where everybody came from every creed and they want to be quote unquote fiscally responsible. And they were like, you know, he did great by way of allowing me to save on my taxes, this and that. And I'm like, that's, that's wonderful. I'm, I'm, I'm I love the fact that you're able to, um, you know, take care of your future, the future of your family, all of that. Um, you know, if you invested just say a couple hundred dollars along with everybody else in your community, you wouldn't have to be complaining to me about the thousands of dollars that you're having to pay by virtue of the uh, flat tires that you got because of the potholes that didn't get filled because infrastructure wasn't taken care of. Um, but you, you, you I, you saved money, I guess, and you didn't save money. I okay, okay, you know. And, I, and again, I did, I did kind of miss Infrastructure Week there across those four years. I knew it was supposed to be coming, but I've never quite arrived. But well, yeah, but so was the 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 virus going away. We're turning the corner. I we I I must have just driven right past it. I we missed a couple of things. I don't know. I I and I'm not here to 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 harp too much on things. The way I see it at the end of the day, legitimately everybody is trying their best. It's just everybody's best is at a very different level. And when it comes to a person occupying the Oval Office, your, your best gotta be pretty damn good. And <laughs> yeah. that, That's a very rosy uh, belief of human nature that everybody's trying their best. I'm not sure that's actually if you, true. No, if you could do better, like when someone's like, oh, you know, I shot 67, but, you know, I should have shot 64. And I'm like, bitch, if you could have, you would have. It's very simple. It's, it's not rosy. It's very black and white. Someone's best on any given day is not necessarily good. They're just doing what they can. Because if you really, really, if you say, oh, I could have stopped and, you know, help that lady that was pulled over on the side of the road. It's like, well, 
yeah, obviously you could have, but you did not. You drove by going 83 miles an hour. You are, you did what you did. What it, it, and, you know, like former guy said, it is what it is. We can't live in a world of fantasy of, oh, that should have been a 63. And it's like, yeah, it wasn't though, was it? Well, that's what's satisfying about your job is that ultimately there's just a number attached and you, you are what you shot. And that, I don't mean as a human being. The but score you like, shot is what you shot. You yeah. are not what you shot. No, but I mean, self-worth has nothing I mean, to do with your score. Oh, I'm, not, I'm not talking as a, as a human, but as a golfer, you are what you shot. And it doesn't matter what you could have done. You shot 67, you shot 77, and that's who you are on that day as a golfer. Uh, it's interesting in my job because it, it's so much more subjective. Like some people might love a story, some people might hate it. And, you know, you, there's this imaginary pecking order that writers go up and down in the eyes of their editors and their readers. And there's no real metric. I mean, there is now with, you know, page views and stuff like that, but I never pay attention to that because I, it, even that is a busted metric. Like if I, I could write every day a Tiger Woods story and it would do a lot of traffic, no matter how shallow or lame the story was, because people just click on anything involving Tiger, especially if it's his car accident or whatever. Whereas you could, you could write some beautiful article about an obscure player that would get a fraction of that. So it, even, even page views is not a, a great metric, but that, I mean, that's what I love about golf is that it's just a number on a scorecard and you can, you can turn it into an essay and a monologue, but ultimately the number is the number. I mean, I find that deeply satisfying. Are you in the same camp or do you want to, do you want to litigate the number and, and explain what really happened? No, oh, I love that. And again, that's why I say life is so analogous to life because the way things is the only, the, the truth is what the truth is. The score you shoot is a score that you shoot. And it'd be the same thing as, you know, if I were to be out in a tournament round and I had 15 pars and three birdies and I sat there and I was like, man, like, yeah, sure. I shot 69. Nice. I, missed about seven birdie opportunities though. And my fellow player would have been like, you know, I have, let's say I have my two fellow players in the pairing there. One guy or one player was like, man, you know, that was such a solid round. And the other player was like, really? You shot three under? I, I thought you shot like one or two over because you didn't make dick. None of that matters. You know, I am not a person when it comes to subjective things a lot these days. My, what people view as right or wrong or good or bad is not necessarily going to have any bearing on my life if it's opinionated. If it's an actual fact that puppies are cute, then yeah, I can, I can, I can fucks with that. If it's something like all cats are evil, that's not true by any stretch of the, of the, of the imagination. Oh, and it's close though. They, most cats are evil, not all. That's your opinion and you're allowed to have it. Thank you. I, um, my, see, in my, in my clinical studies have proven that it's maybe 0.4%. There's was one cat, his name was Willie and he was a dick that I was able to charm over pretty much every other cat that I've ever encountered though. Um, but have, no, you, I, that, have, I, have you not heard the story of shortbread? My former cat that got stuck in the shortbread. Tree. Shortbread. Yeah. <laughs> well, shortbread was adopted that name. I like calling her shoddy like she was in a hip-hop song oh. yeah. sure there was like this 60-foot eucalyptus tree that was a uh, previous house and one night came back with the kids and we did this incredible cry like the most distressed sound you've ever heard from an animal 
And we were running around the house trying to find shortbread. Thought she was injured, you know, mauled by a dog, whatever. Running, and the kids are frantic. This is years ago; they were younger. But I mean, tears. Finally, we like we look up. We realize the sounds coming from above. So I go, I go up on the roof. Can't find Shorty. She climbs the top of this eucalyptus tree. It is like sixty feet high, and she's stuck in this little Y on these branches. And oh, by the way, a storm's coming. The the tree is swaying like crazy. So. I know. I call Carmel PD and these guys come out with this giant truck, lights on, all geared up. The kids are going crazy. Like they're like superheroes. These guys arriving. But the way the it was a slanted driveway, they couldn't get the truck close enough to the tree. And they're like, I'm not climbing up that tree, man. It's like swaying in the wind for a dumb cat. They they roll up out of there. And now it's like 10 o'clock at night. And kids have to go to bed. You can still hear Shorty crying or just, you know, like this death cry. They all fall asleep in tears. It was horrible. Next morning, I make a million phone calls. No one wants to deal with shortbread. I finally, this dude in Santa Cruz, he's a, he's a wildlife uh, rescue dude. He comes down, climbs up the tree. But first he pulls me aside. He's like, you should probably put the kids inside because uh, sometimes cats in this scenario, they kind of freak out and they jump, mm-hmm. which would be suicide 60 feet down. Yes. So. They, in fact, don't have nine lives. So I, I hustle the kids inside. He repels up this tree with these huge gloves and all these tools, somehow grabs Shorty, comes down, saves the cat. It's like a wonderful, happy ending, except for it cost me like $400 for his services. But it was a great moment. Two weeks later, fucking Shortbread goes up the same tree. And I have to get the same guy to come out. This time he charges me $500. And... Shortly thereafter, Shortbread found another home, and uh, I have no regret. Oh, Shortbread! <laughs> I'm sure she was happier because <laughs> also, well, what does this make? How does this make her an asshole, though? She was a key. She was curious. It's not like she could sit there and read and be like, "Oh, okay, we're not allowed to go up sixty foot trees." The first time is forgivable. Twice you're out. I'm sorry. We got a dog. Yeah, that's, that, and that's fair enough. That's fair enough. <laughs> this totally went off the rails. But actually, we were talking about Miss Putts. And <laughs> it made me think about something. And I was playing golf with Michael Bamberger the other day. And we had this discussion. Like, what feels better when you make a 10-footer for birdie, for par, or for bogey? Or do they all feel the same? Par. I would say bogey because it saves the round. Like if you can, if you mess up a hole and you can, you can somehow crawl out of there with just a bogey. Like, of course you make a lot more pars than, than bogeys. For me, I'm always fighting to avoid double bogeys. And it's like, it's, it can save your whole day, but. Uh, For sure. That's why I, I didn't know how to say this. I think though that we tend to, you would view the stoppage of a double bogey as much of a momentum builder as me stopping a bogey potentially, like at a certain point in a round, let's say. So I, I know you're, you're sort of it's sort of a put down on you by you, but it's it's fact based. But I, I mean, the, the thrill of a birdie is not as much as as the relief of saving a par for you. So I think that. I'm one of those people that's like, well, you should be able to make four, you know, four to 12 birdies, let's say in a round, theoretically, theoretically, even if it's just only on the par fives on a really tough course, or if it's a super short course or a course that really suits your game, you should be theoretically giving yourself a chance to make birdie on almost every hole. 
when you make a mistake though, and you leave yourself in a really crappy situation, like for me at the Kia Classic on the 18th hole, I sniped my tee shot on number 18. I hit a three wood into the rough and the rough was, you were there for the, the pro-am. You remember how thick that rough was. It was like the fur of a Siberian Husky. And, and that's a hard hole. That might be the hardest 18th hole on the tour, right? Like that hole's a biz. It's, it's good. I, but yeah, but you're going like, if it's, you're going like three wood, eight iron. So I don't think that's hard. Um, so anyway, I snipe it into the rough and the volunteer that's there is like, oh, it's right around here. And I was like, oh, okay, great. Thank you, ma'am. And we're like trying to look forward, stepping very gingerly because again, you don't want to be stepping on your ball. The poor lady steps on my ball. And so I'm like, oh, I'm like, yay, we found it. Cool. And so I call for a rules official and I was like, okay, can we, can you just let me know what the situation is? I can't remember exactly everything. I should know all of my rules and I'm very good with my rules. It's just, this is the 36th hole of the tournament. I was well inside the cut line. I just wanted to know exactly. And I was having a time. And so he was like, yeah, you just try and recreate the line. Like, but that lady stepped on it. I didn't step on it. I'm not entirely sure. Like, so we try and recreate the line as, as, as best we can. I go and I'm sat there with my caddy Todd and I'm like, bruh, like, cause you've got the bunkers all along the left side. You've got a hazard on the right on the, to the left of the bunkers. There's a cart path. And beyond that is technically not out of bounds, but there is like an orchard or something like that. And you've got this like, you know, 25, maybe 18 yard fairway that you can run it up. It's a front right hole location. And I'm like, man, it's like a downhill side hill lie in the rough. And I was like, Todd, I don't think I can get this to the green. He's like, all right, what are you thinking? I was like, give me a, give me a sandwich. I'm going to go, you know, I'm like 160 yards to the flag. I was like, give me, I'm going to go sandwich, sandwich, and just try and figure out what just, I want to, again, I want to eliminate the bogey. I want to eliminate the double. And so he was like, or I want to eliminate the double in essence at that point, because realistically, I mean, that rough was so thick. If I was trying to try and go after it, it could have gone anywhere. It could have gone right or left. And that was death in either direction. So I just sort of pitch it out with a sand wedge. I'm 73 yards and I pitch it to about six or seven feet and made that putt. And I was like, that was so smart. You know, as opposed to being like, oh, I can, you know, I'll be a hero. I'll go ahead and, you know, hit out of this and then have it just dribble into the hazard, drop four where the ball is below your feet to a front right hole location where there's water surrounding it all over as well. And the green's super undulated. So for me, I think that making smart decisions and making par is a lot more satisfying and can change your momentum as opposed to a save for bogey or a birdie putt i like that that's it's a satisfactory answer but um yeah <laughs> uh, also that means that my short game's not terrible so that makes me super happy <laughs> no i am happy um, so the rules official thing is interesting because I, I know that you have a very old school belief about adhering to the rules and no tolerance. For- belief? What do you mean belief? That's just, it's, it's, again, it's just, it is what it is. The rule is this, you do it. No, I, I, I'm trying to compliment you here, Christina. Like, I, I res- <laughs> I, like you're hardcore and I respect that. Um, so when, when you see players calling 
rules officials in for the most basic things, you know, dropping next to a red stake or whatever it may be. Do you roll your eyes like, come on, you should know how to do this. You're a professional golfer. Or do you, do you kind of get it and you respect that they don't want to have any uh, slippage when it comes to rules? Like, what is, your, what is your take on just calling in an official for the basics? Well, I would say that if it, it, is, it is going to be situational because if you're going to find a player who one, I, a lot of times I get called in. I, they don't even bother with a rules official because like, it's going to take us six minutes and it's going to ruin the pace of play. And I know you're going to lose your damn mind. Like, what do I do here? Um, and at the same time, if, because the rules officials, one thing that a lot of people don't realize is that the rules officials are there to uphold the game of golf and they are not there to try and screw with you. They're going to try and give you as much information as you can, as they can, so that you can provide yourself with the best opportunity to hit your next shot as well as you can. And so sometimes there, there may be a point where a rules official, even if it's something as simple as a hazard, or if it's penalty area, or something as simple as nearest point or something like that, they can be of they can be of help within the confines of the rules. So as long as it's not one of those things where it's like, no, dude, your nearest point of relief is that bush. Sorry. That cart path, this is where we're going to be taking our drop from. And this is the nearest point of relief. That's, that's all that there is to it. I will roll my eyes a little bit. Um, but if on occasion it, it is a, you know, sort of an interesting situation where it's like, well, no, that was actually, that was pretty well played of making sure you're aware of exactly where you can drop and what you're allowed to do within the confines of the rules that I can respect a little bit. But then I'm also the asshole that's like, bro, you just hit it in the fairway, you'll be all right, you don't need nobody. Yeah. Uh, for me, it's an eye roll, like it's the most basic things, like these guys call in an official and I get there's a lot at stake, but, um, and I, I'm, I'm thinking more of the PGA tour. Where I, I, I see it more often. It's like I'm playing golf your whole life. You should know how to do the basics, but I understand. Um, I'm just curious your take on a situation like what happened to Abraham answer at the masters. If you recall, he was, he was in a bunker and he just, brushed a few grains of sand. He got dinged the two strokes. Uh, you know, on one hand, it's black and white. You touch the sand, you get penalized. On the other, uh, you know, he, you, he can't actually see the sand. His club's above it. And it took the, the HD cameras to, to spot the infraction. Um, are you okay with people calling in infractions? Should he have taken those strokes? Where do you come down on, on a, a very persnickety situation like that one? Well, I will say that I can empathize with the fact that he did not intend to um, shovel sand behind his ball to obtain a better lie. And I can appreciate that. Um, at the same time, though, I, I like I'm one of those people that's like, you know what? One, I never I don't believe in asking for forgiveness over permission. I always ask for permission first. And I always say, I don't really need an apology because if you didn't mess up 
to begin with. There's no reason to apologize in essence. And in that sense, there's a tiny part of me that's like, again, like, uh, if you didn't hit it in the bunker, that wouldn't be something to worry about. Also, I'm terrified of sand anyway. If I have a single grain of sand in my shoe, shoes coming off, socks coming off, I am investigating and flicking that little, that single grain off. I do not have my club anywhere near the sand. I take a complete uh, look at the situation. I'm assessing where the sand is around the ball, how it's this and that, whatever, whatever. And I ensure that I don't ever, I, I'm not necessarily one that says, okay, you have to have the uh, leading edge of your sand wedge has to be level with the middle of the ball, this, that, whatever, whatever. Cause if it's sitting down, you don't have that luxury. If it's buried, you clearly don't have that luxury. Um, and this is the thing, same thing. Like I've seen, you know, uh, throughout the years on coverage when a player's like chipping and they, you know, put their wedge behind the ball in the grass. Sometimes it can improve the lie. Sometimes it can. I, I hover so much whenever, like, I don't even put the blade of my iron next to my ball in the fairway. I, I, I want to make sure that I stay as far away from that as possible. So I can definitely empathize with him in that regard. At the same time, the rule is what the rule is. The one word that I would prefer being removed from the rules of golf is intent. And that's kind of harsh for me to say, but it simplifies things. Because again, at the end of the day, everything we're doing by way of the rules is to simplify stuff. And it's like, yeah, you know, you didn't, you didn't mean to uh, brush the sand, let's say it happened though. And I'm really sorry. (laughs) maybe you're going to have to make some adjustments to how you come into the ball from now on whenever you're in a bunker maybe you're going to just hit it in your rough or hit it on the green or hit in the fairway and and if you don't that's the reason that's one of the reasons why it's deemed a hazard or used to be deemed a hazard technically i'm not trying to impugn uh abe answer but i mean professional golfers are so sensitive like, can't you feel the sand when you're moving? Mm, I'm going to actually go when I go and practice in a little bit. I'm going to go and see. I Because I've seen the video. It's not a substantial amount of sand. I, I don't think you're going to notice seven or eight grains of sand unless it's in your shoe. Then you're going to want to you're going to want to do things. But the only thing that's interesting to me about this scenario is I've, I've heard many professional golfers tell stories about for instance, they're testing drivers and they insist that one weighs more than the other. The engineers say, no, they're, we measured them, they're identical. They insist this one's heavier and they go back to the lab and you know it's half a gram heavier, whatever the story may be. And so I know that the professional golfers fingertips and are, are so sensitive. So that, that's what, that's just makes me question that whole scenario. But uh, anyway, we, we can move on from there, but I, well, I, now, I will, I, sorry, now I'm going to take, I have a little gram scale. I'm going to take some sand. I'm going to figure out how many grains of sand are in a half a gram. That sounds like a well, substantial amount. I, mean, I just made sand. up that number. I'm, I'm just saying, but I, I will admit though, I have had clubs where, and even irons where the weight was identical. I could just feel the weight was dispersed differently when I've picked up a club and swung it. So Yes, there is that. A half a gram is a lot, though. That's the only well, thing. I, I'm not moving cocaine. I don't know the grain. <laughs> I'm, I'm, 
I will, I will tell you, I will see if seven or eight grams of sand is even one tenth of a gram is the only thing though. It's, it's, it, I think it would be hard to, yeah. I would say the closer thing would be potentially, although your eyes are supposed to be focused on the ball, if anything, when you take the club back, you should be able to see if there's a change in the lie in that regard or the, the surrounding area, the, the actual physicality of a couple grains of sand, I think would be personally, I, I, and I will test this and I will report back and I might be totally wrong be like, bro, I felt three grains of sand. Like, yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I want you to do some granular testing on this. Um, so this, this leads to the inevitable question. I mean, have you witnessed cheating on tour, which is different from rules violations, you know, people break the rules, uh, and it is intent becomes important. Like we make mistakes and all that, but have you, have you seen instances where you feel like people are purposely trying to gain advantage by, by breaking the rules? I have seen instances where players have not known the rules well enough to understand that they were trying to, or that there were, there was an infraction, not that they were trying to infract on a rule there, there was an infraction. Um, and I have, witnessed people attempt to i don't know if i'd go so far as to say cheat but i have witnessed people trying to take advantage of a drop and i called them on it before they took their drop and then deferred them to a rules official because i am not the word of law when it comes to the rules of golf i know my rules very well I just don't, if they don't believe me, then that's okay. And if there is something obscure that I wasn't necessarily seeing, then yeah, by all means, call a rules official and see if that sprinkler that you're eight inches away from and it's actually behind you and you're just trying to get relief from it because you're at like a 45 degree incline. Uh, yeah. And oh, okay, you've said that you've been hitting it fat all day. So that's why you're worried you're going to hit that sprinkler head that's not what the rule states that you're allowed to do. I would suggest we confer with a rules official and whatever the rules official states, I will respect that because they're the ones that know the rules, supposed to know the rules better than I do. And, oh, you didn't get relief there? Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when, when you call a player in that scenario and you call them out, how frosty is it for the rest of the round? Or the rest of the, your career? I mean, or is that, do you, are people taking it like adults? I mean, what is the vibe like when, when you have those little tough conversations? Well, in, in, in one situation where the one that I just described with the, the sprinkler head, things got a little testy with the caddy. And I was like, well, my thing was, I was trying to prevent you guys from getting penalized because in my opinion, there was no reason as to why you would be getting relief. And he was griping and bitching about it and then like bitched at me after the round as well and he mentioned something about like you threw my player off this and that and I had told that girl immediately after it had happened in the rules official I told her no this is not a reasonable reason for you to get relief that I told her I said I was look upon it however you want I was trying to help because I didn't want to have to be to call a penalty on you if you just took that drop. So I wanted to have the rules official be there. Whereas if it was something I didn't know, then yeah, by all means, go for it. And I will respect that decision. 
Um, and so I called her afterwards. I was like, your caddy was, was saying that I, I messed with you around. Like, are you, are you okay? And she's like, why is he smoking? And she's like, I wasn't even worried about that. She was like, I thought you were trying to help me out, make sure that I was doing the right things. And I was like, yeah, well, your caddy said that you'd been like, <laughs> you've been duffing all these shots. So he, he assumed you were going to duff this one or something like that. And so we were all good. There, there, were, there was another in, incident where um, I did have to call someone on something after it had happened because it wasn't something that I could have seen as like an attempt to do something. It was just something that happened right in front of me. And I was like, fuck, okay, this happened. And things, it's been a couple years or a little a year and a half or something like that since it happened. And, you know, things are okay. They're not great. I would say, um, my thing is though, it's, it's, this has nothing, this is never anything personal. It's just strictly what the rules book states. And I would never, you know, and I would never want anything bad to happen to anybody, but if something happens and, and especially if it was just a mistake. And I remember I, I told the rules official of, you know, because of the lot, you know, they didn't intend this or that by, by definition of their words or their misunderstanding of it. I just want them to know the rule. If you as a rules official decide you don't want to give them a penalty, that is entirely your per like your your decision. I'm not here to sit there and be like, rah, rah, rah. I want them to get a 20 stroke penalty or this, that, rah, rah, rah. I'm like, this is I did my bit. This is on you now. This is your decision. So I don't care. So if you don't penalize them, cool. As long as they know one way or another what the rule is, that's ultimately all that matters to me. Cause I just gotta, I gotta. I got to go to bed and I got to focus on my own things. Right. And so I, I've been, I've been good. Like I, again, it's never anything personal. It's just, it's just golf is the way that I see it, but there are rules. Yeah. But it, it, it can become intensely personal because once, and I agree with what you're saying, you're, you could be protecting them because once you get that reputation, it follows you forever. And yeah, that's the worst C word in my vocabulary. Yes, I've heard all the other ones. I, I think, <laughs> but I mean, just for instance, I'm, uh, you know, I'm writing this, this biography of Phil Mickelson and talking to mm-hmm. all these old Arizona state guys. And there's one player that they played with in the, the late eighties and early nineties who developed a reputation for cheating. And in, in mm-hmm. their minds, it was cheating. It was pretty blatant and it was, it was pretty intentional. And he's been like more or less ostracized from this whole group. And this is a super tight knit bunch of dudes who get together for reunions and play golf and hang out. And this guy's not, he's not part of it. And it's not, it's not because of anything other than they just can't respect him and who he is and what he's all about. And uh, it's carried over from the golf course, you know, 30 years ago to their community now. And, um, you know, the, obviously, we know, BJ Singh, his whole history. I mean, it's, it, it's a big deal. I mean, I, I think that's, you have the right attitude that you're, you're actually helping these players, even if they do get hit with a penalty, um, you know, they, they, they need some corrective justice and they need to understand that there's a lot at stake here. And maybe they don't always know the repercussions because when, when, when you get that label, it never goes away in golf especially not in golf. And that's, that's the thing. That's one reason why I love this game so much is I revere it because it's the last bastion of, in, in my opinion, in my limited knowledge of it, of integrity in sports, you know, you're, you look at 
all these contact sports, all these team sports, you're trying to foul and get away with it in essence, you know, or you're trying to act like you got tripped up in soccer when it's like, no, dude, you got attacked by the turf monster and you just stumbled on your own feet kind of thing. And so golf is the only sport that has any sort of a good flop. Every other form of flop in sports sucks, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And okay. yeah, it, it's just there's so much honesty and integrity within the game, which is, again, why I keep saying that's so analogous to life in that if you try and get away with something in the end, it will catch up to you. And that's not a threat. That's not a bad thing. It's just, there is, you've got the law of averages and everything curves towards good and just and right. It just, it isn't necessarily a a sharp and steep one. It it is always going to bend towards good. That seems like like a very hopeful way to end this podcast. I mean, I, I'm I'm inspired by your your sunny um, optimism about human nature. It's either that or I like eat a bullet <laughs> through my past experiences. It's, that, you know, that took a dark turn. Christina. No, no, it's just a reality though. It's just a reality, and I'm aware of that reality. So the way that I see it, we only have this one life that we're guaranteed. There might be an afterlife. We might end up as worm food. Either way, the only thing that we're conscious of is right here, right now. So why not make right here, right now the best thing that we can possibly make it, you know? And you got to have faith. You got to have faith. Without faith, without hope, without optimism, what's the point? What's the point in all of this? Like, as again, as someone that's lived through this, what is the point? A year ago, with everything going on with all of the unknowns of the pandemic, the, the correlations people were making between the, uh, the coronavirus in comparison to the, uh, the 1918 flu and 50 million people died and this and that, and you're just like, son of a bitch like what if this ends up being worse you, you can't think of it that way it's just you can only put one foot in front of the other and you've got to just keep on going you know and and you've got to find the small victories in this life and you've got to find the beauty in this world and you've got to you know like like you learn so much from dogs, you know, they, they smell everything. Everything is new. Everything is fresh. Everything is now. And we're so consumed with dwelling in our past, which is something we cannot change. And we're so consumed with what the future holds, whereas it's never written. We're the pen and the paper right now. So why not, why not doodle something pretty cool? Well, you, you, you've honestly inspired me because I, I think I tilt towards the more cynical worldview. So I'm, I, this will probably be a recurring theme in this, in this ongoing conversation of ours. I'm, I'm going to try and adopt a little more of your sunny optimism. Yeah. And also, like I said, we've had a good run. So whatever happens, if I get hit by a bus, like, you know, at least I want to die happy. We should at least name your successor in this podcast. That does happen. Think about, you know, who's going to replace you if if that does come to pass. We should have a line of secession, you know, like um, clearly uh, mandated. You don't don't have to say you don't have to say it now, but um, I'm thinking I'm like, I've got some stuffed animals that have gotten me through some tough times. 
I'm just kidding. You're, you're stuck with, you're stuck with us, Christina. So, um, anyway, this was, this was a very edifying conversation. Um, I hope the listeners enjoyed it. We will do this again in perpetuity or something close to that. Um, you want to you want to do the big send off? Like you want to give it a little, a little pizzazz? Oh well, wow, gosh, this is still so new to me, and I'm like, I know I've listened to so many podcasts over the years, and yet my mind completely blanks. But you know, just understanding the fact that we have to state as much as I hate saying it of how important it is to subscribe and rate this podcast, whether it's on uh, the Apple podcast app on iHeartRadio app, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere you get your podcasts, tell your friends about it. Um, I think we should start up an email address where people can like send in questions. I would love to have a little bit of interaction with people in the way of like answering Q and A's as opposed to just doing it when I'm, you know, flying or if it's like a Friday night and I'm like, yeah, yeah. I ain't going out. You know, I think that could be fun. That's a great idea. We're going to, we're going to figure out that for the next episode. So everyone who has now a great question they want to ask, I have to listen next time to get that email address, which doesn't even exist at the moment, but we'll. No, but we can just say to tweet us or shoot us a message on, on Instagram. All of my handles across the board are at the Christina Kim because I, Christina Kim was taken. So I'm the Christina Kim, which is a bit I love the idea of people sending in questions. We will figure that out in the most efficient way possible. But for sure, I'm at Alan Shipnuck on Twitter. You know how to reach Christina now. And if anything you want to say or you want anything answered, we're, we're all ears. But um, we will, we'll continue drilling down on this issue in future podcasts. Now we need to let the listeners go on with their day. So this is the Full Send Podcast with... Christina Kim. And Alan Shipnuck, thanks for listening. Until next time. That's a wrap. <laughs>